Hey, I'm Tyler Fenwick, host of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feltman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Just search for Indiana 250 Off the Record. Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer Senior Reporter and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. As a note, I wanted to let you know this will be my last time hosting the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. And a special thanks to the guy who recognized my voice at an event I covered recently. I can't tell you how much that did for my ego. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Taylor Bacchus. Taylor is an attorney at Indiana Legal Services, which has been utilizing the state's new eviction ceiling law. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with managing editor Daniel Carson and reporter Alexa Schrake to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, November 1st, and these are your headlines. We'll start with you, Daniel, for news about a lawsuit against a former high school wrestling coach. What can you tell us? A former high school wrestling coach who slapped a student in the school district he worked for have won summary judgment in federal court on claims filed by the student and her mother. U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana Magistrate Judge John Martin issued the order October 13th. J.M. and her mother, Jessica Kittle, filed a nine-count complaint against Duneland School Corporation and one of its wrestling coaches, Keith Davison, alleging J.M. was smacked in the face by the coach during a wrestling practice. The incident happened in December 2020 when J.M. was a student at Chesterton High School and a member of the wrestling team. Davison's coaching duties at Chesterton High School for the remainder of the 2020-2021 season were suspended, but he was allowed to coach and be involved with the Duneland Wrestling Club, which participated in activities at the school. Davison resigned his position as a volunteer unpaid wrestling coach for the high school on January 21st, 2021. He has had no contact with JM since December 28, 2020. No criminal charges were filed against him. Jessica Kittle, named as a plaintiff individually and on, in on behalf of her child, alleged federal claims of obstruction of equal protection and due process clause of the 14th Amendment right to a public education, as well as eight state law claims, battery, assault, criminal mischief, intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligence, negligence per se, statutory harassment and right to dignity violations, and loss of consortium. Duneland sought summary judgment on the federal law claims on the basis that there were no genuine issues of material facts as to municipal liability for Davison's conduct. Duneland also argued that the plaintiffs did not plead a cause of action asserting the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, but if they had, the IDEA requires that they exhaust their administrative remedies, which they failed to do. For his part, Davison sought summary judgment on the federal claims on the basis that the official capacity claims are redundant of the claims against Duneland. He also argued he's entitled to qualified immunity. 
In his order, Martin wrote that the fact that a principal has broad discretion regarding educational and scholastic matters within his school does not equate to final policymaking authority. Because the plaintiffs have not identified a final policymaker who violated any of their rights, Martin wrote, he did not need to address whether their 14th Amendment rights were actually violated by Duneland. Martin said the shift from asserting a claim based on J.M.'s status as a female student to one based on her status as a student with an individualized education program whose needs were not properly addressed is a significant shift and not properly raised in response to a motion for summary judgment. The federal magistrate judge remanded the state law claims to state court, declining to exercise supplemental jurisdiction. Thanks, Daniel. A judge has declined to grant habeas relief to a man in prison for the killing of an Indiana University student in 2000. Judge James Sweeney denied the motion from John Myers. That was a reversal from four years ago when Sweeney granted habeas relief to Myers, who was convicted for the murder of Jill Bierman. Myers was convicted in state court and sentenced to 65 years. The Court of Appeals of Indiana rejected his direct appeal and petitioned for post-conviction relief but Sweeney ruled in 2019 that Myers' counsel was ineffective. The state appealed that order, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reinstated Myers' conviction. The court determined that although his counsel was deficient, Myers wasn't prejudiced. The Seventh Circuit remanded the case in September 2020 for the district court to consider Myers' claim that the state withheld exculpatory evidence in violation of his Brady rights. The Brady claims went back to Sweeney in June 2022. In his order denying relief, Sweeney ruled the two Brady claims were actually one claim under Brady and another under the 1972 U.S. Supreme Court case, Giglio v. United States. Under Giglio, Myers argued his due process rights were violated when the state presented four pieces of allegedly false testimony, but Sweeney determined the argument was procedurally defaulted. Under Brady, Myers argued reports not turned over by the state contained exculpatory information. Sweeney disagreed there too, ruling Myers wasn't able to identify what, if any, materials had been suppressed. Sweeney also denied a certificate of appealability. Now let's go to you, Alexa, for news about an alleged Ponzi scheme. A Hamilton County judge has granted the state's motion for the issuing of an emergency temporary restraining order to a Fisher's attorney Darren Blaine for allegedly defrauding people in a Ponzi scheme related to securities. According to a complaint filed by the Attorney General's Office on behalf of Indiana Securities Commissioner, Blaine presented himself to investors as a seller of securities despite not being registered with the state security division. He allegedly obtained $680,000 from investors and used the funds for his personal lifestyle expenses. Blaine was arrested on October 12th and charged with six felony counts of securities violations, one felony count of money laundering, and one felony count of corrupt business influence. The Indiana Roll of Attorneys lists Blaine as active and in good standing with no disciplinary history. According to the complaint, the scheme involved creating Laser Tech Investment Club, of which Blaine was the chairman, and selling it a $1 million promissory note from one of the companies listed as a defendant. Shortly before API filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the complaint says another company, Primora Photonics Inc., was created. All technology from API was then transferred to PPI, shielding it from investor lawsuits. 
Instead of pooling $1 million from LTIC investors to purchase the promissory note, the complaint says Blaine conned investors to wire their money to API, PPI, or himself. An injunction hearing is scheduled for 9 a.m. November 28th. Thanks, Alexa. Moving to a court we don't often hear about, New Indiana Tax Court Judge Justin McAdam, that's without an S, had his robing ceremony on October 18th. McAdam was appointed to the bench in July as the third judge at the tax court. He replaces now senior judge Martha Wentworth. Former Indiana Chief Justice Brent Dixon administered the oath to McAdam. Dixon and other speakers marveled at McAdam's legal background, which includes graduating from Harvard Law School and working in state government with the Indiana Office of Management and Budget. Dixon said, quote, So as you can see, our new tax court judge is talented and caring, a multidimensional person, end quote. McAdam talked about his formative years before law school. That included wanting to be a paleontologist and genetic biologist. He settled on math and ended up earning degrees in economics and political science from Indiana University. McAdams said, quote, As you can see, my path to becoming the judge of the Indiana Tax Court has not been traditional, but I think it has prepared me well, end quote. McAdam also pledged to listen to taxpayers, parties, and practitioners as he works to improve the tax court. Now let's go back to you, Daniel, for an update on a lawsuit involving insurance coverage that was canceled. What can you tell us? A man's complaint against his employer after insurance coverage for his child and wife, who has breast cancer, was canceled, can proceed with his claim after a federal judge denied the company's motion to dismiss. Chief Judge Holly Brady of the Indiana Northern District Court issued the order October 17th. Nick Taylor began working for BW Wings as a regional manager in early 2017. BW Wings twice promoted him, making him area director and then the director of operations in February 2020. As part of Taylor's promotion to director of operations, BW Wings promised Taylor that it would extend health insurance to his wife and child. BW Wings began doing so on March 1st, 2020. Later that spring, Taylor's wife was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer and was scheduled for surgery on July 29, 2020. The company initially informed Taylor that his wife and child's health insurance was improperly implemented under the plan outside the open enrollment period, and the health insurance for both of them would end on July 31st. Later, Taylor was informed that his wife and child's health insurance under the plan would be retroactively canceled to June 30th, 2020. Because Taylor's wife had no health insurance and could not afford to pay out of pocket for the surgery, she was forced to postpone her surgery. The Taylors brought suit asserting interference with their health benefits under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, as well as state law claims for promissory estoppel, breach of fiduciary duty, fraud, constructive fraud, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. B.W. Wings moved to dismiss the amended complaint, asserting that it fails to state an ERISA claim and that all the state law claims are preempted by ERISA. Brady dismissed B.W. Wings' argument that the Taylors cannot state an interference claim under ERISA because they, quote, cannot establish an entitlement to benefits, unquote, that were interfered with under the plan. The district court also rejected B.W. Wing's motion for the dismissal of the Taylor's state law claims under Section 514A of ERISA, otherwise known as the Conflict Preemption Provision. 
Given that preemption is an affirmative defense that must be raised in an answer and not in a motion to dismiss under federal law, defendant's preemption argument was not properly before the court, Brady wrote in the order. Thanks, Daniel. Coming back to you, Alexa, we have an update on how to determine child support. What can you tell us? The Indiana Supreme Court enacted a set of amendments on October 17th to the ways in which child support is determined and added another method to analyze how much money it takes to support a child. The new Rothbarth approach is based on the assumption that the amount of spending on children can be inferred by examining how the parents reduce spending on themselves. The order adds clarity to the rebuttal presumptions that recognizes factors or circumstances that aren't available to be incorporated in the formulas used under the guidelines. The order addresses calculating parenting time credit when a parent spends a different number of overnights with their children. In families with multiple children, a non-consumable parent may not exercise equal amounts of overnight parenting with all the children, the added section says. There is also change to the calculation for child support when parents have split custody. The order includes updated schedules for weekly child support payments based on adjusted income and how many children there are. The amendments go into effect on January 1, 2024. Thanks, Alexa. Moving to civil legal aid, the Civil Legal Assistance Conference took place last week in Indianapolis. The conference was hosted by the Indiana Bar Foundation. During the opening session, Floyd County Judge Maria Granger talked about what civil legal aid means to her. She told the story of her uncle who came back from serving in Vietnam and had a drinking problem. She said he was arrested for drinking in public and beaten while in custody. He died from his injuries. Granger said, quote, Uncle Fox's death, it happened with indifference to humanity. But justice requires humanity be valued by all of us who take part in it, end quote. Granger also shared a story about her stepson, who was killed in action during his second tour in Iraq in 2006. After becoming a judge in 2009, Granger said she started seeing young men and women who reminded her of her stepson. She said, quote, I knew there was no more we could do for the ones who died over there, but we could surely do better by the ones who came home, end quote. Granger said empathy and access are important keys in civil legal aid. She told attendees, quote, you can bring justice when the law doesn't quite meet what is right by showing empathy, end quote. The rest of the day-long conference included CLE events. Organizers said there were a record 250 attendees. And to round out this week's headlines, Alexa, what are you working on for our next print issue? Starting with the August 2024 LSAT, we'll no longer have an analytical reasoning section or what is commonly known as logic games. The Law School Admission Council announced the change on October 18th. The change comes after a 2019 settlement with two blind test takers who were unable to draw diagrams to answer the questions. In its place, the exam will have second scored logical reasoning sections. The council stated in its announcement that the changes from an extensive research and designed to ensure all test takers can demonstrate their logical reasoning skills to the best of their abilities. You can read that story in our November 8th issue. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, theindianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft. 
Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined over Zoom by Taylor Bacchus. Taylor is an attorney with Indiana Legal Services, which has been utilizing and bringing awareness to the state's new eviction ceiling law. So thanks for joining me today, Taylor. Thank you for having me. So the law I refer to is House Enrolled Act 1214, signed into law last year. And what's a broad overview of what that law does? So House Enrolled Act 1214 provides tenants the ability to seal evictions in a particular set of circumstances. Under the law, tenants can have an eviction case sealed, which means the case will be made private if they meet one of the following um, categories. The eviction was dismissed, a judge ruled in favor, ruled in the tenant's favor, or an eviction order was overturned on appeal. Additionally, there needs to be a judgment. If one was issued, it would need to be fully paid or if there was no judgment ordered. And Indiana Legal Services, like I said, you all have been utilizing this new law, at least in part by putting on eviction ceiling clinics, right? Yes, that is correct. And so how do these clinics work? And so um, something I'd like to add is that the law is retroactive. And so just because it was enacted in 2022, individuals who had evictions filed before then are potentially eligible for eviction ceilings. Um, and so we usually have uh, quite a large turnout at the eviction ceiling clinic so far. But just generally what happens is that a tenant will arrive to the location of the courthouse. Um, they will meet with our support staff or volunteers, and they will go through our intake process um, where that individual will get information from them, but also find the cases that they are seeking to seal. And then after they go through that process, um, they will get to go speak with an attorney and an attorney will review the documents and determine if they are likely eligible for eviction sealing. And then at that point, if it's determined that they are eligible, then we'll assist them with filling out the necessary forms. And then depending upon where the ceiling clinic is, um, they may be able to go file those forms immediately and have the judge sign them, or they may need to go file them and then wait or wait a day or two before the judge rules on them. So theoretically, this could get done within a, a day or two or even same day? That is correct. Yes. And you mentioned this is retroactive. Is there um, like a limit to how far back this can go for your eviction? Uh, there is no no limit. And you mentioned that there have been quite a few people coming out. I didn't know. Do you have like a roundabout number for how many people have come through these clinics? So, so, so far, we've had two eviction ceiling clinics. And at the moment, we've helped about 220 people um, get eviction sealed. Now, some of those people have multiple evictions. So while we have helped, you know, about 215 people, um, the amount of evictions sealed is likely much larger than that. Now, you were going over some of the the criteria to be eligible uh, to have your eviction sealed. And to me, that sounded like, okay, this hoop and then this hoop and then this has to happen. Is it cumbersome at all? Are, are there areas where there could be uh, more clarity or anything like that? Um, I think it's, you know, statutes in general are sometimes difficult to read and understand. And so I think, you know, it's 
pretty straightforward, but, you know, we have people helping individuals get through it because of, you know, that language of the statute, potentially, you know, people may not understand, they may be eligible, they may not understand the statute. Um, and so, you know, we can help them sort of determine if they are eligible. Now, before this law, was there any kind of process you could go through to get an eviction sealed? Before this law was enacted, there was no process. And so if an individual had an eviction filed against them, um, when you search their name on my case, that eviction would show up no matter sort of how long ago it occurred. So for people like you, can you give me a sense of just like how important this was leading up to getting this law enacted, looking at evictions? I know I'm, I'm going to mention a question coming up with a scarlet E, but I'll, I'll leave that for then. But um, just for for the advocates and attorneys who've been working on this, how important was it to to get the momentum to build up to having this law? Uh, it was really important uh, for this to happen. Um, so, you know, it's anyone could have a lawsuit filed against them, but that doesn't necessarily show sort of what the outcome of that lawsuit was. And so just because someone had a eviction filed against them does not mean that they were evicted. And so it's sort of difficult um, without, you know, actually getting into the case to see what happened. And so just because someone had an eviction filed does not mean they were evicted. But, you know, with landlords, they could sort of see that, oh, you know, this person had an eviction filed against them. You know, I don't feel comfortable renting to them uh, when they may have not been evicted at all. Now, that Scarlet E I mentioned, of course, um, I don't know if I need to say, but that's an eviction, the E there. What does it mean for people to get that off of their record? It's life changing for some people, I would say. Um, you know, they're getting access to housing that they may not have been able to access before. Um, housing is one of the main social determinants of health. Um, the factors of a person's environment that affect the quality of life outcomes. So being able to give individuals stable housing is huge. I apologize if you mentioned this earlier and I just forgot, but um, is there a limit on the number of evictions you can have sealed? There is no limit. And so where does Indiana stand in general, do you think, with with renter protections? So in general, I would say that there is a power imbalance between tenants and landlords, and it is exacerbated by Indiana's landlord-tenant law. Um, it gives tenants fewer rights than other states do. Uh, landlords control access to housing through the ability to set rent, renew leases, and to evict individuals. They also control whether the housing is safe and habitable by fulfilling or ignoring repair needs. So unfortunately, it's a lopsided situation. And does this law, the, the eviction ceiling law, does it do anything to actually decrease the number of evictions or is it sort of like an after the fact thing? I would say it's more of an after the fact thing. Um, but, you know, regardless, it's still a great step for tenants in Indiana. And the fact that, you know, if you have an eviction filed against you, but you don't end up getting evicted or you fall into one of the other categories, you're still able to have it sealed and it's no longer visible. And now with these clinics, uh, do you rely on on volunteers to help do these? We do rely on volunteers. Um, we can have volunteers pulling up the cases to see, you know, where evictions were filed when they were filed and gathering all of that information. Um, also, um, we'll have volunteers sort of helping individuals get from room to room and sort of move through the space. Um, and so volunteers are crucial to what we are doing. Is it helpful or maybe essential for volunteers to have some kind of 
background and understand renter rights and the, the new law and that kind of thing? Uh, it's not crucial. I think it will just depend sort of what the, the volunteer is comfortable doing. But, you know, if we've had volunteer attorneys who have helped sort of fill out um, eviction ceiling packets, um, but then there are also, like I said, other volunteers who are merely just helping individuals get from room to room. Um, and if anyone who's listening to the podcast is interested in volunteering, they can contact Donna period Sadler at ILSI.net or Jeff period heck at ILSI.net. And by the way, the next eviction ceiling clinic is November 13th from 10 to 2 at Central Library in Indianapolis. All right, well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again for joining me, Taylor. Thank you for having me. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.